And let's uh, pray together as we prepare to open the word together. Father, we thank you that this local church is a testimony, in fact, to your international power, drawing people out from the nations, Lord, to know you, to serve you, to be in union with you. We thank you that your regenerating power is the same today as it always has been, and that you continue, Lord, to grow your family by saving people the world over. And Father, this morning as we open your word again in Colossians, we know that it is a living and active word that your spirit still uses to accomplish your will and your work. And I pray, Lord, that the spirit would work on our hearts this morning, Lord, to remind us of things perhaps, encourage us, uh, steer and guide us, whatever your pleasure is, Lord, would you have the freedom to do what you will. We pray your help in Jesus' name, amen. A man is diagnosed with strep throat. And so he goes to the pharmacy and he picks up his prescription of penicillin pills. And the penicillin will almost certainly cure the man of his strep throat if he takes the pills and ingests them according to the prescribed schedule. It, it will do the man no good whatsoever if he leaves the bottle unopened and sitting on his shelf somewhere. The medicine must get inside this man if it is to be effective. Christ being in you is very different than you admiring Christ from arm's length, like an unopened bottle of medicine. Being incorporated into the very life of Jesus Christ is very different than simply respecting the teachings of Jesus from a safe distance. Participating in the life of the crucified and risen Jesus is very different than merely recognizing Jesus as a great religious leader. Eating and ingesting the bread is very different than simply admiring the untouched loaf as it sits on the bakery shelf. Well, my friends, the Apostle Paul was a person who had Christ in him. And Paul was in Christ. Paul was a branch who was connected inseparably to Christ the vine. Paul was in a real and a vital relationship, a union with Jesus Christ. Paul enjoyed a supernatural, spiritual, organic, mysterious union with the one who was crucified, buried, and risen. And listen, a big part of what it means to be in union with Jesus Christ is to share in his sufferings. Because after all, 
Servants are not above their master. Just as Jesus suffered and died bringing untold redemptive fruit, so we as his followers in this organic union with the beloved Jesus Christ, we will suffer as we endeavor to spread his fame and his gospel. Paul was writing to the Colossians from where? From a prison cell in Rome. Now, perhaps to the Colossian readers, it appeared in this moment that the mighty Roman Empire had been stronger than Paul, stronger even than the Christ that Paul followed. After all, Paul had landed in prison for his gospel efforts. Was it really wise for the new Christians in this young Colossian church to keep following this Jesus, if this was the kind of thing that could happen? Well, let's listen now to what Paul says to the Colossians in the closing verses of chapter 1. What does Paul say next to his Colossian readers? In verse 23, if we remember from last week, Paul has just told them that he became a minister or a servant of Christ's gospel. And now Paul begins to flesh out really the contours, the contours of what that means. What does it mean for him to be a minister or a servant of the gospel and of Jesus Christ? He says in verse 24, now I rejoice in what? Now you and I might like to rejoice to express joy, say, when our, our good reputation grows or when our impact increases or when our finances increase. But Paul, this, this person in vital union with the crucified and risen Jesus Christ, he tells the Colossians here that he rejoices in his sufferings for their sake. Isn't this strange? Now, Paul knew all about suffering in the process of propagating and spreading the gospel. In several places throughout his letters in the New Testament, Paul talks about, I'm going to list a bunch of stuff here, that he, these are actual quotes from his letters. He talks about being buffeted, homeless, reviled, persecuted, slandered, perceived as the scum of the world, imprisoned, enduring countless beatings, often near death, receiving 40 lashes, lest one, being beaten with rods, being stoned, shipwrecked three times, adrift at sea, in danger from rivers, from robbers, 
from his own people, from Gentiles, danger in the city, he says, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and he also mentions being bound with chains as a criminal. And yet, Paul says in our verse, his, and we need to see this, his authentic posture in all these sufferings was a posture of rejoicing. Rejoicing how, Paul? Well, as Paul suffered so much in close resemblance to his Lord, who had suffered so much, Paul could rejoice in his suffering since, A, his suffering Lord had risen from the dead, and B, now Paul was drawing from Christ's resurrection life, yes? Paul was drawing on the resurrection power of his Lord who indwelt him so that Paul was able, in fact, to authentically, really rejoice in his sufferings. He rejoiced through the power of the risen Jesus Christ. Paul says here now, I, I rejoice in my sufferings. Uh-oh. I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, Colossians. Notice that. My, my sufferings are ultimately for your benefit, Colossians, for your sake. As I suffer so significantly in spreading the gospel of Jesus Christ, he says, what happens as I'm suffering spreading the gospel is that the gospel does spread. It has spread to you, Colossians, and you have believed. But I want you to watch where Paul goes next. He says something that I think at first glance appears quite shocking to us. Quite shocking. Paul says, In my flesh, listen to this, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church. Now, what does Paul mean here when he says he's filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions? Does Paul mean to suggest that somehow there was a lack, a deficiency in the afflictions and in the suffering that Jesus experienced on the cross that now Paul must make up for, must fill up? Is Paul suggesting here that somehow the atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross was left incomplete and now Paul had to make up the difference in his own flesh? Is that what he's suggesting? And I hear some no's and I want to be as clear as possible here. That is definitely not <laughs> what Paul is saying. Think of it, just, just a few verses ago, so in verse 20, 
And again, in verse 22, if you have a Bible open, you can look at those verses, verse 20 and 22. Paul very clearly expressed the completeness, the finished work of Christ's cross. It is Christ's blood, Christ's blood that has made peace on a permanent basis. And it is Christ's body of flesh dying on the cross that has reconciled people to God once for all. And furthermore, didn't Jesus himself say, it is finished when he breathed out his last breaths on the cross. So so there's absolutely nothing, we need to understand, nothing to be added whatsoever to the finished, effective, atoning work of Jesus Christ on the cross. Christ's atoning afflictions are most certainly complete. There is nothing lacking. Okay, so if Paul isn't referring in our verse to filling up a lack in the atoning cross work of Jesus, then to what is he referring? Well, I think we can think of it this way. So it is Christ's afflictions, Christ's blood, Christ's death on the cross that has always been the means of salvation to the nations. But after Christ died, he rose, and then he ascended to sit at the right hand of the Father. Meaning that he is not now physically on earth. And therefore he can't personally, listen, he can't personally present the worth and the value of his sufferings to the nations. So that what is lacking in his afflictions is this physical and geographical extension of those atoning afflictions to every tribe, nation, and tongue. I'll say that again. What is lacking in his afflictions is this physical and geographical extension, which includes suffering, extension of those atoning afflictions to every tribe, nation, and tongue. And Paul is filling up that lack. Paul is suffering himself to promote to the nations the atoning suffering and death of Jesus Christ. John Piper puts it like this, and I'm going to read you this quote. I think it's helpful. Quote Piper says, What is lacking? is that the infinite value of Christ's afflictions is not known and trusted in the world. These afflictions and what they mean are still hidden to most peoples. He says, and God's intention is that the mystery be revealed to all the nations. So the afflictions of Christ are lacking in the sense 
that they are not seen and known and loved among the nations. They must be carried by ministers of the word. And those ministers of the word complete what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ by extending them to others. The wonderful beauty here, friends, is this, that as people saw how Paul suffered with rejoicing as he worked to spread the worth of Christ and his atoning afflictions, as, Paul, as people saw Paul suffer, those people were actually watching what? They were watching the suffering love of Jesus Christ who indwelt Paul. And the gospel was bearing fruit. Now, say you and I suffer a loss of popularity as we endeavor to spread the fame of Jesus Christ. Or say we suffer the loss of a job because our love to Christ, when the rubber hit the road, meant more than the job. And the job was taken away from us. Say we suffer in one of those kinds of ways, but in that suffering that we endure, the resurrection power of our Lord Jesus Christ is causing us to rejoice what's going to happen. The world around us is going to pay attention, is going to notice that. When we take up our cross with rejoicing, by the power of the resurrected Lord, it is a profound and very powerful witness through which God brings benefit to the people who witness it. But now in Paul's case, in Paul's case, there was an aspect of this suffering for the spread of the gospel that was unique to him in his apostolic specific ministry. So just as important, very important figures like Moses, Elijah, uh, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, all of those people had suffered on behalf of God's people for God's specific purposes within his redemptive plan. So Paul the Apostle suffered on behalf of others as he undertook his very specific, very God-designed role of spreading the gospel to the Gentiles. Are you a Gentile this morning? Praise God for the spread of the gospel. Now, it's a very, very, I think, interesting fact for us to consider just briefly, Bible scholars, that Paul himself once linked his own ministry, his own ministry, and his ministry was to the Gentile nations, he linked his own ministry with Isaiah's suffering servant. In Acts 13, verse 47, Paul linked his own apostolic ministry to reach the Gentiles with Isaiah 49, 6, where God had said to the servant of Isaiah, 
God had said, I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. Paul linked his own ministry to the Gentiles with that Isaiah verse. And as Paul endeavored to fulfill his specific calling, spread Christ's light to the Gentiles, what happened? Paul looked strikingly like the suffering servant of Isaiah. Or better, Paul looked strikingly like the the suffering and risen servant who indwelt him. So listen, just as the servant had been despised and rejected by men, Isaiah 53, 3, so Paul was held in disrepute, 1 Corinthians 4.10. And just as the physical appearance of Isaiah's servant was so marred, Isaiah 52.14, so Paul's bodily appearance was considered weak, 2 Corinthians 10.10. And just as Isaiah's suffering servant had been punished with stripes, Isaiah 53, 5, so Paul had received lashes and he had been beaten with rods, 2 Corinthians 11, 24 and 25. Again, friends, as Paul strove in suffering to spread the good news of the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul ended up looking strikingly similar to that suffering servant who indwelt him. The servant Paul looked like his servant Lord. Paul continues in verse 25 saying that he became a diakonos, from which we get the word deacon, a servant, a minister of the church, according to, listen, according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Paul had received a stewardship from God. In other words, Paul had received from God the divine plan of salvation in Christ. And within that plan, God had given Paul specific responsibilities to carry out, that God expected Paul to carry out. And we see the very specific stewardship that God gave to Paul in Acts chapter 9, verse 15, where the risen Jesus had said that Paul was a chosen instrument to do what? To carry the name of Christ before Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. In Romans 11:13, Paul identifies himself as an apostle to the Gentiles. And in 1 Timothy 2:7, Paul identifies himself likewise there as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul is the apostle to the Gentiles. And in this letter of Colossians, what's he doing? He's writing to a predominantly Gentile church. And when he says in verse 25 that the stewardship he'd he'd been given is for you, he's saying that the stewardship is for you Gentiles. To the Gentiles, 
Paul was making known the word of God, making known the gospel of the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and his cross. To the nations, Paul was making known God's gospel plan that had been prophesied in the Old Testament and was now, being, now had been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. In verse 26 going forward, Paul calls this worldwide Gentile including saving plan of God in Christ. He calls it the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. Now track with me here, friends. Many centuries, let's go back many centuries before Paul, before he ever wrote this letter to the Colossians, centuries before that. Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had been having dreams as he slept. And Daniel came along, if we remember the story, Daniel came along and ended up giving Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of those dreams. That story is found in Daniel chapter 2. And here's the thing, throughout that second chapter of Daniel, Nebuchadnezzar's dreams and their interpretation is called a mystery. Or mysteries, plural. Eight times in Daniel chapter 2, we have the word mystery. Daniel reveals to Nebuchadnezzar the mystery of his dreams. And what was the mystery? The mystery was that one day a kingdom would arise that would supersede all the earthly kingdoms there would arise a kingdom that would fill the earth, to use the language of Daniel 2. It would be a world-encompassing kingdom, and it would be a kingdom that would last forever. Why am I bringing up Daniel 2? Because in Colossians 1.26, Paul is referring to that mystery from Daniel chapter 2. Now, listen, as Christ had come to be born, to live, to die, to be resurrected, the worldwide, world-encompassing kingdom of Daniel chapter 2 had arrived. Its king is Jesus, and his kingdom includes not only believing Jewish people, but Gentiles the nations. In Colossians 1.27, Paul continues, to them, to the saints, the holy ones that he's just mentioned in verse 26, to them, God chose to make known how great among who? The Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this Mystery, this world-filling, nation-encompassing mystery, which was prophesied in Daniel chapter 2, now fulfilled in King Jesus and his kingdom, is rich in glory. It is rich in glory for North American Gentiles like me, for South American Gentiles, for African, European, Asian, Australian, and Antarctic. Antarctican 
I think I got all the continents. <laughs> For all those Gentiles, worldwide. And Paul, we ask you, how exactly, this is so important, how, how Paul, how precisely do you define this mystery that you have been mentioning here? What is the mystery exactly? And the next part of verse 27 is where Paul gives us his answer. The mystery, says Paul, is Christ in you, Gentile believers, the hope of glory. The mystery that was first given in dream form to the Babylonian king in Daniel chapter 2, now revealed is that the promised Messiah, the Christ, who was born on this earth in Jewish lineage, he indwells Gentile believers as well as Jewish believers. Gentiles had been excluded from the Old Testament covenant community, but now the crucified and risen King of Kings indwells believing Gentiles. Christ in you, Gentiles, the hope of glory. God's plan from ages past was that Jews and Gentiles who believe in Messiah Jesus, Jews and Gentiles, would be fused together as the new Israel, as Greg Beale says, together believing Jews and Gentiles are in Christ and Christ is in them through the Spirit. This is the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to the saints. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Wow! Now, I take this very personally. I am a Canadian Gentile of Scottish-Irish descent, but God has grafted me in, Romans 11. He's grafted me as a Gentile branch into his olive tree. I am a Gentile branch who draws my life from the vine, from the risen King, Jesus Christ. This is astonishing to think about, my friends, as Gentile believers, we are part of the worldwide kingdom, get this, that was prophesied in Daniel chapter 2 and realized in Jesus. Christ in me or Christ in you means what? It means that we are crucified, we are buried, we are made alive, we are raised, we are glorified in union with the King of Kings, Jesus Christ. We participate in His life, yes? He is our hope of glory, as Paul says here. When He appears in glory at His second coming, we will share and participate in His glory face to face forevermore. And so, logically, next comes Colossians 1.28. 
who else would we proclaim in the church? Him we proclaim. Now, I can't speak for other local churches, but when you come to Snowden Baptist Church, we will proclaim Him. The pulpit is not the place to dispense newspaper-style advice for better living. The pulpit is the place to proclaim Jesus. His person, his cross, his resurrection, his lordship, his return, his beauty, his glory, his worth. And so our message at this church is a very predictable and a very monotone message. It's Christ. Him we proclaim because we believe that he is the need that human beings have. Him we proclaim because we believe with Paul that in him and nowhere else are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Where else are you going to go for true wisdom and knowledge but to Christ? And all of us are encouraged in this church to go public with Jesus Christ. To announce him and herald him and proclaim him to a sin-sick world. Him we proclaim. I've said it before and I'll say it again. May the profile of Jesus Christ be raised ever higher in this place. Him we proclaim. And the contours of this Christ-centered proclamation, Paul says, are that we warn everyone, that's what proclamation, warn everyone and teach everyone with all wisdom. And why? He says we do this so that we may present everyone mature in Christ. To, To grow into maturity or to grow into completeness in Christ is to become Romans 8.29 people. People who are conformed to the image of God's Son. That's what it means to be mature in Christ. That's the goal. What's the best kind of church growth? It's not as much numerical growth, although numerical growth can be good, but it is growth into maturity in Jesus Christ. And it's the Spirit of God who does the work, who transforms us into His image from one degree of glory to another as we constantly and very insistently expose our souls to Word and Spirit, Spirit and Word, Word and Spirit, Spirit and Word over and over and over and over again. Well, in our last verse this morning, Paul returns again to the idea of suffering for the gospel, struggling to make Jesus known, struggling to mature the church in Jesus Christ. He says in verse 29, for this I, what? Notice the language, toil, and what's the next word? Struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Ah, yes. 
I love this verse because it highlights two realities of ministry. To proclaim the gospel, to serve the church with the aim of maturing saints in Jesus Christ. This is toil. This is struggle. There's no doubt about that. Paul is just so very realistic here. The word that is translated into English as struggling from the original Greek text is the word, see if you recognize this, agonizomai, agonizomai, which sounds a lot like our word agony, doesn't it? Agonizomai. This word describes athletic strain, athletic effort, striving in an athletic contest. To divide, to rightly divide the word of truth and carefully, courageously proclaim the gospel, encourage saints toward maturity in Jesus Christ, it's hard work. But then notice here the second thing, and I would call this an absolute non-negotiable essential in the work of ministry, an absolute non-negotiable essential, and that is the empowerment of the Spirit of God. We do ministry how? With his energy, Paul says. Not my energy, but with his energy that he powerfully works within me. I've often said to younger preachers, younger pastors, I'm not terribly old, but there's a younger guy, I've often said, if, if you are not dependent on drawing from the inexhaustible wells of the Spirit of God in your ministry, then good luck to you. I give you a week, maybe two weeks, before the agonizomai, the strain of ministry catches up with you and and you see that your own internal resources are not nearly sufficient for the work. The struggle was real for Paul, friends, but the Spirit was real. And when we proclaim the gospel, whether as pastors in a church setting or as lay people in a house setting or at work or at school or elsewhere, it is his energy, I hope you agree, that must be working in us and through us. His energy, not our own. Well, I hope it's become very apparent as we walk through this passage today that the only way, the only way that Paul could rejoice in his pronounced suffering for the gospel is by the resurrected Christ indwelling him, living with him, and giving him the ability to rejoice. The the only way that Paul could put up with the agonizing struggle of getting the gospel out to the nations is by having the Spirit of God indwell him and fund his every word, work, and deed with divine power. Unless God, who never fears, God, who is never defeated, God who is never surprised, unless this God indwelt Paul, then Paul would surely have succumbed to the fears and discouragements and anxieties he faced in getting the gospel out. 
Is Christ in you, my friend? And are you in Christ? Have you taken the medicine, so to speak? Or are you only admiring the medicine bottle? If Christ is not in you, I can't say it any better than Charles Spurgeon said it from a sermon he preached some 140 years ago. He said, if, if Christ is not in you, quote, get Christ in you, <laughs> curing your sin, Christ in you, filling your soul with love to virtue and holiness, bathing your heart in comfort, and firing your heart with heavenly aspirations. Yes, yes. Receive him today as Lord and Savior if you have not already. Turn to him as Lord of your life and your rescuer. Now is the day of salvation. And to all of you who are already in Christ and Christ in you, I say this to you in closing. In your close communion with him this week, go and bear fruit. Go out into the world this week and show him off to people around you. Give room for his heart of compassion to be working through you, for his heart for the lost to be working through you, for his comfort to work on the disturbed and his disturbance to those who are perhaps too comfortable. Christ in you, the hope of glory. May his fame this week spread through Montreal and beyond. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your realness toward us in your word, that we are a people who are called, in fact, to suffer, but are not left there. We draw from the wellspring of your resurrection power as we go about our mission in this world. We thank you that you are with us, that you are in union with us, that you have come to dwell within us and that that will never change. Father, help us each this week as we go out into the world. Some of us have struggles this week that we know are coming. Difficult conversations, doctor's appointments, whatever it might be. We pray your resurrection power to help us, Lord. To help us be winsome, to help us be Christ-like, to spread your fame even in those times of trial and difficulty. Father, be with us. Continue to walk closely with us. Smile on us. Show us your faithfulness, your comfort, your love, your goodness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.